0: There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection pod. And for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Steven and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. All right, riding solo today. Stephen's gonna to edit this one on the on the back end, but very excited to again talk with another individual that I met at the International Wolf Symposium. She is coming to us from Palmer, Alaska, in her uh, hometown bedroom at the moment for the holiday. She's a lead technician for the Denali National Park and Preserve Wolf and Caribou Research Project since rough, uh, for roughly five years since 2018. She is Kaya Clauder, and Kaya, so great to see you again. How's everything going down there in Palmer, Alaska?
1: It's going wonderfully and it's great to see you as well. Um, I met so many wonderful people at the conference and so it's really nice to be able to follow up with uh, you know all the different people I met and the diverse things that they work on that are related to wolves.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you because we had a couple of people on already and it, it's just going to sort of continue down the line. What were your initial thoughts being there because you gave a talk, which we're going to get into today, just about the overall scope of the symposium. Was there anyone there that you were itching to meet or talk to, or a, a talk you wanted to go to? What was your general takeaway from from the whole thing?
1: Oh, I had I had a great time at the symposium. Um, I was really impressed by the diversity and quality of the research and information being presented there. Um, I had a great time. Seeing some old friends um, from other wolf projects I've been involved in, and it was also really enjoyable to meet some new people. Some people whose you know names that I knew from their work, others that um, I didn't. But I was you know once I heard them speak or learned what they did, I was really excited to get to meet with them in person. Um, yeah, so it was really wonderful to make make some good professional connections and um, get get to know people a little bit more rather than just reading their papers.
0: Yeah, it's a, I love the in-person aspect of it. And clearly when everything went down in 2020 and the and the pandemic and they pushed everything, it's really great. It, it was, I think I, sp- I said this to, we spoke to Nick Jevak and Jad Davenport and, and Cassie, a couple other people. And it really just seemed as though it was very quick in terms of you, because you had to present. And so we were saying that was one of the, I don't want to say criticism. It was just a noticeable thing that, you roughly had fifteen minutes to cram whatever you were talking about, and then you had a five-minute Q and A, and then it's jetting off to the next to the next talk because there was so much stuff going on. How did you feel that you were able to prepare? Did you get your points across? how did How did you feel it went for your specific talk?
1: It was a short time frame. Um, sometimes, though, for talks, I think that can be nice because it gives you a great excuse to gloss over any of the complicated stuff that you didn't really want to try to explain to people. Um, Really just focus on what was interesting or exciting or new about your work. And I was presenting material that um, at this point I'm I'm pretty familiar with. It was the subject of my master's research. So I was able to condense that down pretty well. I think, I hope. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I certainly had that same sensation of sort of rushing excitedly from one talk to the next and wishing there had been more time. But at the same time, I wouldn't have wanted there to be less talks because I wanted to hear about all this cool stuff that people were doing.
0: Yeah, it was it was really, I mean, they did such a phenomenal job in the way of the, the, the swath of people that were invited and the amount of topics that were really covered was almost, it was really eye-opening when I was trying to plan of what I was going to do when I got there and especially riding solo without anyone else from an organization, or at least if you come with a group of people, you can say, oh, you go to room A, room B, things like that. But yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It was really good. And it's like you said, meeting all of the people that I've interviewed in person, and then meeting people such as yourself for the first time, and really just starting to make those connections is always is always wonderful. It's such a great thing Mm -hmm, to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you get started in this in this world? Where where, how, where did you grow up? What was your initial, I guess, foray into biology? I know you, you got your master's, uh, I believe, in the University of Washington. You were in multiple wolf projects, New Mexico, Minnesota, Yellowstone. So where did this love of wolves or, or more importantly, I guess, this, this initiation of wanting to study wolves come from?
1: I'm going to give you the full story and I'll let you edit as you desire.
0: No, go for it. We love it. That's why it's a long form. So for
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here in my childhood bedroom. And one of the things that I'm seeing on the wall here is a collection of all of the red Fox themed cards and artwork and memorabilia that I collected as a kid or were gifted to me as a kid, because when I, about between the ages of four and f- well, honestly, forever, but certainly, you know, strongly when I was four, five, six, seven years old, um, I just like lived and breathed red foxes. Um, One of the pictures I'm looking at here is me at school on school photo day, dressed up as a red fox, because that was how I wanted to go to school photo day. And I feel so grateful that my parents They were so supportive. They were so encouraging. They never told me like, Oh, that's weird. Or you should go do more normal kid things. They were just like, yeah, she's really into foxes and it's great. Um, and I, I look at that and I just, it's so clear to me that I've been really passionate about wild carnivores for my whole life. And certainly at six years old, I didn't, I wasn't like I'm going to be a wildlife biologist, but I knew that foxes and I, also grew up with sled dogs and everything I was just like these are the coolest creatures that I can possibly imagine um and when I was getting ready to go into kindergarten I was a little you know anxious like most kids and I asked my mom like well you know what are we going to be doing and my mom's like well they'll be focusing on you know learning and teaching you some new things and I was like well will we be learning about foxes she said well the teacher will probably focus on the things that it's really important for all the kids to know. And I was like, well, when do I get to focus on studying, like learning about foxes? (laughs) She was like, well, you know, it, it may not be till, till later, like when you're in college, when you can like really focus on the things you're most excited about. And, that was, that was a funny family story for us for a while. And I went through a long period of, um, thinking I was going to be a veterinarian in my like preteen and teen years. Um, and at some point I, I I realized I didn't want to be a veterinarian because I wasn't interested in like, um, you know, small animal domestic, like cats and dogs. I love cats and dogs. I'm, I'm a pet owner, but that wasn't really where my passion was, but I had several vets And I'm very glad they did tell me, like, genuinely speaking, if you become a veterinarian, the only way to pay off your massive debt is to do that. And if you're not super interested in that, maybe you should be thinking about other things as well. And so there came a point when I was in college and I chose to go to um, a really unique, small liberal arts school that had a lot of curricular flexibility. So you really could focus on learning about what you wanted to um, and not sort of be just in a major track. And uh, I was like, wow, you know what I really want to learn about is essentially foxes. I want to learn about wildlife, wildlife biology, especially wild carnivores. So that always made me laugh just to see that come full circle. And I did my um, senior project as an undergrad looking at coyotes on Mount Desert Island. So I, I went to College of the Atlantic, which is in Bar Harbor, Maine on the coast, very small school right by Acadia National Park. Beautiful place. And I was really fascinated by these wild canids that had introduced themselves to New England pretty recently. And, you know, both ecologically and socially, you know, in terms of human, the human world, we're sort of still getting settled. We're still trying to figure out how's this all going to work. And that I was kind of like, yeah, that was great. I want to do more of that. And Around that time is when I started saying, you know, telling people, yeah, I, I want to be a wildlife biologist um, because it it had it had the wild animals, the wild carnivores, it had scientific research which I was, you know, really passionate about. The, th- th- there were owners, I didn't have to interact with owners like being a vet. Um,
0: right. Yeah. You you want the megafauna? I think that's what you yeah, were. For, and like, I, the whole time. <laughs>
1: It became clear to me during that time that, you know, part of why I'm so fascinated by carnivores and love them so much, a lot of it is just who I am and who they are as creatures. I just, there's a connection there. But I'm also really intrigued by the effect that these charismatic animals have on human beings and how our cultural and personal historical legacies Inform that interaction to such a significant extent. Um, I think you know, if I were working with, I don't know, let's say a an invertebrate like a a snail or something, I don't really see people bringing the same kind of historical, whether that's political or religious or anything, um, narrative that they have within themselves to the table about that creature in the way that they do with carnivores that complexity often makes working with large carnivores really challenging and sometimes deeply frustrating. But Mm. I think also to me, really interesting and complex and engaging and offers us the opportunity because of that complexity and that challenge. Part of why I'm passionate about large carnivores, wild carnivores, is that they challenge us as individuals and as a society to really grow, really think about how do we want to be on this earth? How do we want to be using resources? How do we want to be behaving towards other creatures, human or animal, that are challenging for us? And seeing the way that large carnivores really make us ask those questions about ourselves, whether that's as people, as communities, as a whole society is super interesting and rewarding to me.
0: I mean, you hit the deeper level that we try to hit on this podcast because it is, because it's mostly wolf centered. I mean, we've talked about, but we've, we've gone into the realm of bears and coyotes and other fauna on the landscape and really what you said describes it beautifully that we it's really an inward looking as human human beings and seeing what what can like you said what can we learn from these creatures that who have been on this landscape well way longer than we as a socialized society you know, if you want to say we've been around for a few thousand years in, in societal terms, but really in, in the way that the country, I, you know, we'll say North America in and of itself, it hasn't been that long. And so, really, to learn the deeper aspects of what communities are like, what packs are like, how they raise their young, how they navigate across the landscape, we're still very, very young in that way, even though we've gone through North America and, and there's pretty much people just about everywhere you can think. What's that like for you? Because you, it seems like you clearly had that upbringing where you were allowed to really feel and think and guide yourself through this process. What's that like for you then, as you say, professionally, you touched on a little bit when you get in there and there are, are all these factors. It's political, it's religious, it's you know, anti-pro. It's not just, this is the science and this is what we're trying to gather out of studying these creatures.
1: I think one of the things that I try to bring to the conversation is trying to bring some of that complexity, which often kind of gets left in the shadows or in the subtext, trying to really bring that out in the open so we can address it. Um. When I worked on the Mexican Wolf Project as a volunteer, which I, that was kind of my first, quote, real field work was my first work with wolves. And that project is very socially and politically contentious. There are many, many challenges that people have to deal with on, on, you know, in doing that work. I was interacting both with people who were extremely anti-wolf and anti-federal government, anti-wolf reintroduction, all the things that go along with
0: right. Things. Exactly and, yeah. and
1: also people who were very pro- wolf in the sense that they really wanted to see wolves on the landscape. they were opposed to any kind of heavy-handed management um, or any kind of concessions to you know ranchers or those kinds of other land users. And in interacting with both of those groups of people, what really struck me is that in a lot of cases, it seemed like they were much more, attached to and their actions were being driven by their idea of what wolves were than by what the reality of a living, breathing, you know, stinking, pooping, hunting wolf, right? And I just found that really striking because I think there's often in our our culture, there's kind of this narrative of um, that people who are, you know, anti-wildlife or afraid of certain species or something, they just don't know enough. And the people who support them, you know, they've learned more and they're it's like a more true representation of wolves. And I really got to see how it kind of doesn't matter whether your ideas are positive or negative about wolves. People can get so invested in their narrative that it disconnects them from the animal. And right. and I'm not saying people shouldn't have shouldn't that wolves can't be symbolic to people or can't be, you know, culturally representative of different things. I mean, that's inevitable. And I think can be really beautiful, right? Like that's part of what makes cultures rich is the way we create a symbolic world around us. But I do think it's challenging to be in a room where you're trying to make management decisions about biological wolves and the people at the table are talking about symbolic wolves.
0: Yeah. I can see how that's a problem. and So I think
1: one of the things that I try to do is, is give the space for that to be a little more clear. So when I'm giving, for example, presentations to the public, like in Denali National Park, even if it's a, you know, I'm not speaking about anything particularly contentious. I'm usually just giving some general information about wolves and how we study them. I will start the talk by drawing people's attention to this fact that depending on your cultural and personal background you're coming to the table with some really different ideas about these creatures and i you know use some examples from that like from european culture north american indigenous culture different places and invite people to just think about like oh what are my ideas about wolves and what would be the value or what would be the context where I might want to be aware of that and be able to distinguish that from kind of what I might call biological wolves or, you know, a particular wolf that you're dealing with in a given situation. Yeah. Because I feel like I if, mean, the that's... more that we're able to do that, um, the more that a, we'll be able to, I think, respect other people's opinion, even if we disagree with it, because we're, we're able to see, okay, this, This thing symbolizes this thing for you that at some level I might be able to relate to, even though I disagree about how we should manage this animal and hopefully opens up a little more space to talk about the science and the management and try to, you know, use that information as best we can without it being overly muddled by um, that more symbolic aspect or how we see and perceive and associate these animals
0: right the stories the myths the legends things that carry through i mean the fact that you've run the gamut with mexican the the, the mexican grey wolf project you were in minnesota i mean you're really in all the hotbeds you've really hit the four corners essentially you were you know it's which is crazy because i'm look i looked at it right before we started and i go oh wow no kai has been everywhere basically <laughs> but it's do you we it just seems that you've what's the difference? what is is there a difference you can Pinpoint where you're at now in Denali as opposed to those, uh, as opposed to Minnesota, Yellowstone, New Mexico, any of those places. Because I, 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 spoke with Bridget Borg a couple of times who you get, you guys work together and it just, it seems, I guess, peripherally that, you know, Denali is, it, it's up North it's, it's sort of this hidden gem or jewel that nobody really, not that nobody, not as many people, I think, make the trek to Denali as opposed to Yellowstone or Wisconsin, you know, in that sense. So for you and Denali, what's some of the, the differences you can draw there in terms of what you were just speaking about with the political, social aspects of it? Is it more of a freeing biological study? Or is do you still get some of those issues creeping in, but just on a lesser level?
1: Certainly, wolves in Denali are politicized in a couple of key ways. And I, honestly, mm. I, I've yet to hear of a major wolf research project, which is to say, you know, an area that has a significant wolf population, or really any wolf population where they aren't politicized in some way. Yeah. I think there's, there are a couple of key differences um, in working with wolves in Denali compared to um, you know, New Mexico or Yellowstone um, that do make it different. One is we're not working in a landscape with any significant livestock production. Um, mm. And obviously conflict with livestock and livestock um, producers is a tremendous element in most of wolf management in the Western US. And that's something that's pretty much absent, I would say, really entirely absent from our situation. We're also dealing with a much lower human population density um, than, than any of those other study areas. And just sort of, just by the sheer numbers, that reduces kind of the amount of people that are there having strong or conflicted feelings about the wolves on the landscape. I think the social history of Alaska um, is interesting because certainly in some ways, um, as far as sort of Euro-American presence in Alaska goes, there's been this very much a narrative of, it's the frontier, you should be tough. This is is a place for people who are independent and can handle themselves.
0: I can see Um, that, yeah.
1: And I think that... That is certainly common in other parts of the Western US, don't get me wrong, um, but it's definitely a very strong cultural aspect in Alaska as far as, again, the European presence. Um, that being said, there are some similarities, such as um, there are many people in Alaska who have very negative f- feelings about the federal government. There are many people who they or their parents or grandparents came to Alaska kind of specifically to get away from a life governed by too many rules,
0: right? That overreach. Type yeah. Thing,
1: and yeah. so the sense of government officials or agencies, whether it's state or federal, but particularly federal, you know, telling you what to do or limiting what you can do is, um, you know, very uh, um, they respond very negatively to that they really don't want that in their lives. And right. frankly, I can relate. Um, although I don't have like super strong views in that regard, certainly compared to, you know, where I am in Alaska, I have gone to other places in the U.S. that have a lot more, you know, things like town, you know, city or or county bylaws, um, you know, that, that really detail govern aspects of you know, where you can build a shed in your yard or Something like that, and have definitely been in situations where I'm like, oh my gosh, get out of my life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. And so, you
1: know, I do relate to that. Even though I might disagree on whether or not certain things are appropriate or are overreach. Um, Yeah, I understand. None of us want to feel like we're being forced to what to do all the time by, you know, some big power structure.
0: Um, It's fascinating, right? How that, right? Because we just talked about the political and social aspect and how that draws itself into a biological sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, we we've seen this and we've spoken to the individuals in Yellowstone, the people in Minnesota, the people in Wisconsin, it's this, like you say, people trying to get away. They want to live a more, I hate to free lifestyle in that they can build what they want, where they want. It's not really imposing upon anyone or anything at the moment. And that's a lot of the issues we see with, I guess the Yellowstone and Idaho reintroduction is that it's really not more about the animal. It's really more about the governmental aspect of how that was handled. And similarly, I think to a, better degree, maybe a lesser degree, Colorado, where people are saying it was on the ballot and it wasn't a scientific vote. So there's a lot of, there's so many different factors into that, but it really just gets boiled down to that social cultural, um, you know, idea of what people think. And it's the cultural, it's the social tolerance Absolutely. of... I like wolves. I love wolves. Do I want them in my backyard? That's really kind of, it, it's really, and I, it was, there was somebody we had on here and the, and they said it perfectly that it's not about the scientific tolerance of wolves. It's really the social tolerance. How socially tolerant will people be when wolves are actually there as opposed to if they're a few hundred miles away. So that it, it's, there's so many different factors going into this for you all as biologists and as technicians and, just really trying to do your work to get the information out there that people may or may not want to listen to, or ultimately will just brush aside and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to believe what I believe anyway. I mean, that has to be somewhat frustrating for you guys. I know it's frustrating for some of the people we've talked to. I mean, for you, it seems as though you've, you, you found a way to be able to make that work for yourself, uh, especially in, in Denali and in Alaska.
1: It definitely can be frustrating um, when people feel, or when it, I should say when it feels to me that people are really unwilling to absorb some information, even when I'm not asking them to change their view, I just want them to have the information. Um, I do think another to, to add to perhaps what I said before, another difference between Alaska and some of the other wolf projects and and wolf populations in the U S is that um, our wolves never went away. There have been changes in how they were managed. You know, there were times where they were more heavily um, trapped and targeted, both by citizens and the government, but they were never completely gone. And I think in some regards, with that Alaska sort of vibe of, you know, people wanting it to be wild, people wanting that that sense of self-sufficiency, it kind of, I think in some people's minds, comes with the territory even if they may not be very supportive of wolves, Alaska is just a place that has wolves and that's how it is. And I know that it feels really different psychologically to have, to have something that had been gone, be brought back or, or sort of put upon you if you weren't excited about that versus it just being a baseline reality. But do do think right. that also in some ways influences the tenor of the conversation around wolves in Alaska, as opposed to some of those other areas.
0: Yeah, it makes sense because you, as you said, the, the wolves never went away and yes, it was, as we were saying just before, it's that it's the, the imposing of this thing from a governmental body that really is at the root of all of this. I I think and we've discussed this with so many people is that there's more that we have alike than I believe people want to admit. You know, I, I, we just, we had this on Monday when we were, we had another podcast and it was literally, you know, probably those first five things every, you know, 95% of the people will say, yep, I'm in line with those five things. And then it's people go for the, you know, the 25th or the 50th thing down on their list. And they say, so this is the thing that I'm going to get either angry or passionate about or, and, and, and bring to the forefront and you go, well, that's not really in, in line with what most of us believe. And so it's just where you get a lot of the extremes on the other side, uh, really talking about this, this subject for you when you're, when you're there and, and, and we'll get into your, your presentation and your, and your paper and the, and the work that you're doing, cause it it is interesting to talk about because we don't it's great that we're getting into this subarctic talk cause we're never really, to, you know, we're talking about mostly wolves in the lower 48. Yes. It gets cold in certain spots, but really getting into this, really this wild frontier aspect that where it's incredibly cold, uh, where these animals exist just to sort of wrap this up. I mean, for you, future wise, do you see things sort of being status quo, you know, socially, scientifically up in Denali, it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of, Change over over the course of time in 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 relation to wolves, and I guess the way that they're perceived. I mean, if that's the case, what do you think it'll just go status quo and how people perceive them, how people view them, and how they're ultimately studied, and either targeted or not?
1: As far as the future of perception of wolves in Denali, right now I'm not seeing any kind of big watershed changes on the horizon. Um. Mm-hmm. Alaska has so much space, space that is not being managed or controlled by humans for human activity. And that space gives us a lot of ability to move ahead even when there's conflict, because that conflict is not all having to focus on the same 300 acres and we have to resolve it because there's nowhere else to go. Um, We've got plenty of space for wolves to live where they're not really around people. We also have plenty of space that where people can harvest wolves or where wolves are more heavily managed. And I think that that in some ways turns down the pressure a little bit on the conversation So, that it doesn't feel like it's an immediate crisis all the time. And I hope that long term, that means that it will buy us time to get better at communicating, get better at figuring out strategies for educating people, giving them, you know, helping them feel invested in, in the wildlife around them. Um, managing wildlife more effectively um, to get to a point where we can be really um, sustainable and have people feel as comfortable as possible with what we're doing. That being, all that being said, I would say kind of the big caveat looming over any conversation in the Arctic or subarctic is climate change. At the moment, we don't, we can't really point to anything in particular that seems like a climate-related threat to wolves specifically, but the entire landscape of the Arctic and subarctic is changing very rapidly, in ways that we often haven't been able to predict very successfully, and it's pretty challenging for us to have a good sense of what that landscape is going to look like in a hundred years, in five hundred years, in a thousand years. And not that we can necessarily manage on a thousand-year horizon, but that sense of looming change is ever-present, and I think influences our thoughts about pretty much everything. Um, You know, wolves are an extremely adaptable species, and they already survive in very diverse habitats around the world. So I don't think that, like, they're going to go extinct or anything like that, but what their world looks like and what their ecology looks like and how we manage them and, and interact with them might change dramatically as the landscape changes in the next several hundred years. And I think we're, we're doing our best to monitor and try to understand what's happening and what might happen, but there's definitely a sense that we're going into a lot of things blind or with very little information, and we'll just have to respond as best we can as we learn more.
0: And I love the honest assessment from you because it's, it's true that there's so many things that are changing rapidly, climate-wise, habitat-wise, habitat loss is happening in, in certain places, and really leading into your work, which was scavenging patterns and habitat selection of carnivores in the subarctic, this, is, this must play a key role in what you're talking about. Because if habitat loss, whether it's human caused or climate caused, is really going to shift those dynamics biologically for these these carnivores up there, because you have bears and wolverines and coyotes and wolves, and so all these animals are trying to make sense of the situation as best they can in in a biological sense. So, what are what are some of the things that you went into just just briefly? I guess sort of the overview of, of your work and, and the and this talk that you gave in the paper that you're you're doing about what this means. Is climate change that big of a factor in your study or was it multiple factors in terms of the scavenging patterns and the, the habitat selection of what's happening up there?
1: Climate change and its impacts, as I said, are are kind of in the background of every conversation. And certainly there's a sense across many disciplines in the north that we're scrambling to get baseline data even as the baselines are shifting we're trying to figure out well if we can just get a hold of what's happening now we're going to we're going to need that information in even you know 10 years down the line because you know we're realizing oh gosh right now is different than 10 years ago um and i think that that certainly includes things like the ecology of wildlife what they're eating um kind of what's what's structurally structuring their populations and their demography um, because we are going to have a hard time knowing how and when and if that's changing if we don't have information on it now. So although my work didn't particularly focus on climactic factors in terms of like what I was measuring or putting into my models, you know, there's definitely a sense that this stuff could be shifting rapidly, and it'd be nice to be able to have a comparison. Um, Do you want me to speak a little bit more about that research?
0: Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, give us give everybody the the description of of the findings that you that you got and, and what what are the factors that really go into this? Because we're really talking about, and I was briefly looking over it about behavior, risk, mediation strategies, things that people, as we know, for the most part, wolves and other critters for that matter coyotes they're a little bit more risk adverse they're going to make sure that they're going to be able to eat or drink somewhere somewhat safely especially when we're talking about in a frontier subarctic landscape with larger ungulates larger apex predators they have to really pick and choose where they're going so yeah give everybody sort of a baseline of of what you found and, and what you were presenting
1: certainly so as I was interested in learning more about how the different species of carnivores in the Denali landscape interact with each other. Obviously there's been decades of predator-prey research um, that's told us a lot about those interactions and how those take place within ecosystems. It's only been more recently that there's been as much focus on predator-predator interactions and how those um, fit into ecosystems and shape uh, those processes. And that's super fascinating to me because, you know, if there's something better than one large carnivore, it's two large carnivores. So, you know, great. Right. Exactly. Um, So that was, that was the big umbrella of what I was interested in looking at. And then I took kind of two separate methodological approaches within that theme. Um, The first and probably more involved one um, looked at scavenging and, along with my lifelong fascination for wild canids, I'm looking here at the Fox pictures has been a lifelong fascination with dead stuff, frankly, because <laughs> okay. what better way to learn so many fascinating things about an animal than to have an opportunity to look really closely at its body and it's, it's anatomy and its organ systems and all that stuff. And so I've always been super fascinated Um by things like, you know, necropsies and surgeries and like seeing what's going on in there. So in some ways, scavenging was, was again, a pretty logical connection in terms of, you know, what I've always been interested in. But I recognize that I'm in the minority with that kind of fascination. You know, most people are like, oh, a carcass, let me go away. You know, it's not a Mm -hmm. glamorous or, you know, sort of sexy topic of study in the way that living animals might be, Right. And I think because of that, scavenging research has been a little neglected um, compared to, say, you know, predation, which is very cool. Uh, and, and again, you know, here's how our cultural narratives might influence this, right? Um, in, you know, Western culture, Euro um, descended culture, there is a cultural narrative that to scavenge is is to be weaker, is to be more cowardly, um, you know, than, than the mighty predator. And, you know, not that I think many people have said, well, I don't want to study scavenging because I don't want to study cowards, but that sort of stuff is there in our minds unconsciously and I think can delay or bias the directions that science goes. Anyway, point being, there hasn't been as much attention on scavenging until the last few years, even though from the animal's perspective, scavenging can be a life or death resource because hunting is hard it is so dangerous to be out there trying to kill a moose or you know certainly trying to kill a big ungulate but even if you're a smaller critter you know you're trying to catch a ptarmigan or something you're expending a ton of energy Um, there is always the possibility you could get injured so if that food is just sitting there on the ground for you to eat that's great that's amazing that's fantastic
0: That's opportunistic, really. That's what it should be. It's smart.
1: It's smart to use that resource, Um, and I think there's been a growing understanding of that. And that scavenging isn't just this. You know, for many species, scavenging isn't just this. Oh, occasional side gig. It's a big part of their ecology and their nutritional input, and that is particularly true, I believe, in places where. well, let's be honest, it's pretty hard to be a predator everywhere. I don't really think there's like an easy place, right, to hunt. Right. But in a place like Denali, where you do have low densities of prey and very harsh conditions year round, but especially in the winter, you know, those calories are very difficult to acquire. So of oh. course, scavenging, you know, could be pretty important there. So I wanted to understand um, how are the different species using this resource and kind of how are they influencing each other in that use? There's been scavenging studies in other places, um, probably most celebrated, it coming out of Yellowstone, but other places as well. Africa actually generates a lot of this research where they talk about how large carnivores can generate these food opportunities for the, the smaller scavengers, right? Um, right. And that that's kind of could be a facilitative interaction, ecologically speaking. And I wanted to know, is that what's going on in Denali? And if not, what is going on? Um, so I needed to know, like, who's eating, when, how much, are they pushing each other around? Is, are they avoiding each other in time and space? Stuff like that. And because Denali has all these wild carnivores, it's a good place to do that. So I spent several winters um, trying to locate carcasses. A lot of it was um through the GPS locations of GPS collared wolves where you see a cluster building up it's like okay they're feeding on something let's go check it out
0: they're feeding on something right some yeah.
1: of them I just found from you know track and sign on the landscape or people reporting them um like for example the pilot that monitors our wolves he he called me and he said oh yeah I noticed a carcass in this creek drainage you should go check it out um trying to find every every dead thing I could and putting a trail camera on it that would take photos of who's there, when, what they're doing. And in documenting all these different carcassites and and which animals scavenged and when in the wintertime, what I found was that wolves and wolverines really used that resource heavily, Um, whether that metric was how likely they were to show up or how long they were to stay, pretty much across the board, they were doing the majority of the consumption of that food. And... You know, most of the stuff I had was wolf kills, but also just animals that had died from exposure, whatever. It was always just wolves and wolverines eating and eating. And coyotes and foxes, the other two species I focused on, showed up much less frequently. They spent less time there. They were more vigilant. And it didn't really fit the story of, oh, wolves providing this resource for other species. Instead, what I was seeing, I would describe as um, wolves and wolverines were out competing these smaller species for this resource. Um, mm. and, and I want to make it clear that that's not you know, I'm not saying oh well these other studies were wrong. Those other studies were in different places that have different ecologies and different species and
0: Right, as, different environments. Right, different environment. yeah. and, and that's
1: why it's so important to replicate research across different ecosystems because it could be a different story somewhere else. And so, yeah, what I was seeing was wolves being not only kind of a top predator, but also a top scavenger and, and mm. really, uh, really, you know, eating up that food in in a way that probably prevented coyotes and foxes from getting as much of it as they otherwise would have.
0: You're right, though. It seems that in Yellowstone, it's a little bit more frequent that if there's a kill, they eat what they need. Raven's already there. Scrub jays are there. Then the coyotes and the bear I mean, bears and wolves sometimes are, are hitting a carcass at the same time, sometimes friendly, sometimes not. Is that sort of what you found with coyotes and wolves or coyotes and fox that I, the wolves would just eat whatever they want? Was there ever any point that you saw conflict at a scavenge site or was it mostly one one species would be there they would take what they need, leave, and then the next species would go.
1: Good question. Um, the cameras didn't really document overt conflict, um, and that's not to say it couldn't have been occurring in a in a greater field of view outside the camera somewhere. Um, you know, animals have such keen senses, hearing and smell. Um, they don't have to be ten or twenty feet away from each other to know that each other are there and having kind of an interaction. Um, mm-hmm. The only overt conflict that the cameras captured was um, there were a couple instances where multiple Wolverines were present at carcasses. Some of, most of those actually seemed to be friendly interactions. I suspect some of them were either courting adults or um, moms with pretty large kits that hadn't dispersed yet. There were a couple where, you know, one Wolverine was chasing the other one. Um, And then after the, data collection for my master's features had sort of formally concluded we were still putting out cameras when we got the opportunity and one of those cameras captured a really um dramatic and i think very telling video clip of a wolverine that was feeding on a a wolf killed moose and the wolves were resting you know some yards away and the wolverine was feeding and a wolf um wanted you know the carcass back essentially and came running up and jumped on the wolverine and they scuffled. Um, and then, uh, they kind of got a little bit out of the, out of the field of view of the camera. So the recording paused, essentially stopped. And then the next one was just the wolf feeding at the carcass. Mm. And, you know, to me, that is really illustrative that in this kind of context where you have competition for this really desired resource, scavenging is not a free lunch. It's not something you can just casually walk up to and say, Oh, wonderful. And you just feed Right. And they're constantly looking over their shoulders.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's got to be wild for you. I I just want to touch on this because wolverines are so rarely seen, especially in, in, I mean, maybe not for you guys. What's that like to see wolverine? I mean, are wolverines there presently uh, on a regular basis? Just uh, it seems like for your study, because I know they're one of those elusive predators that people, obviously they're in in the colder reaches of, Canada, North America, so really kind of on that border, more so in the Arctic. What's that like to see the interaction with wolves and wolverines? Was that something you were excited about to see? Obviously, you knew you would have coyotes, but to, to get that predator there specifically—well,
1: I'm always excited about anything to do with wolverines.
0: Um, <laughs> right? Okay, cool.
1: You know, we know that wolverines are, as far as as far as wolverines go, they are fairly abundant in Denali. That's obviously very relative. Okay. Um, I have still rarely seen them in person with my own eyes, um, but we did quite commonly see them on the cameras scavenging, um, and I do see their tracks pretty regularly in the winter because they they travel so extensively all year round, and then in the winter when you've got the snow to capture that, um, you know, I, I go out and I see the tracks, and, you know, even if the tracks are pretty fresh, I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh, well, the wolverine's probably, you know, 20 miles up the river by now, great. Um, they are around um they are so elusive, and you know wolves aren't easy to study to begin with and and Wolverines are much more difficult, so there isn't a whole lot of information out there about kind of how they interact. generally, we think with most carnivores that there's kind of a you know sense of I leave you alone, you leave me alone, neither of us really wants to get in a fight, you know unless it's really mm-hmm. worth it um and that's, I think, kind of our baseline assumption about a lot of things is that the species are just out there and they kind of try not to bump into each other and go about their business. Um, but, you know, these carcassites, that is such a valuable resource that it may actually be worth risking that confrontation. Um, yeah. And, you know, wolverines are a creature, I think part of what I appreciate about them so much is that they have for so long had this reputation as, as a scavenger, as a glutton you know, skulking around, stealing the food, whatever, which even if that were their entire ecology is still a masterful way of making a living in a harsh landscape. And in fact, they actually do a lot of hunting. Um, As we're able to study wolverines more effectively, we're learning that they do hunt quite a bit of small game for themselves. Things like ptarmigan, snowshoe hare, squirrels, ground squirrels, birds, stuff like that. Um so to me they're just absolutely marvelous creatures. I'm always so excited to I mean if I see one I'm over the moon, but seeing their tracks and seeing them on the camera is is absolutely still um you know I'm just like oh great like this is amazing and I feel so lucky to live and work in a place where I'm seeing the evidence of wolverines and wolves and coyotes and bears and all these incredible creatures.
0: Yeah, it's so awesome that you guys have the the whole swath, the whole palette really is there. Talk about the, so the scavenging clearly is different than I think a lot of at least the individuals that we've talked to. And that's fair because like you said, different environment breeds, different behavior, things of that sort. Go into the habitat selection and what that means. And is this specific to the winter months or are you talking about all year long in terms of habitat selection?
1: So the other prong... Uh, other than scavenging, that I wanted to look at was specifically focused on the relationship between wolves and coyotes. Coyotes have undergone this you know, tremendous range expansion in North America, just mind-boggling range expansion, which to me really speaks to their incredible adaptability. Um, yeah. And I've often heard it suggested or sometimes kind of even stated that the reason they were able to do that is because of wolves being extirpated Um, from so much of North America and certainly I'm not saying that didn't play a role Um, but first of all let's remember coyotes and wolves overlapped in you know what we consider coyotes sort of historical range or original range and coyotes expanded across Canada northern Canada and into Alaska in places that remained full of wolves so there's clearly, to me, that what that said is there's more complexity to this relationship than just, I can't be where wolves are. So that means that they're figuring out some way, some strategy, they're using something um, to be able to share a landscape with this big predator. That is well documented as being quite willing to kill them. Um, you know, it's it's not a particularly friendly relationship between wolves and coyotes. And because they're pretty new to Alaska on the ecological time scale, at least, I believe they were first mentioned in Denali's records in about 1917.
0: Oh, okay. Huge wow. gaps in our understanding
1: new. of their ecology in the Arctic and subarctic, just because they haven't been there very long and it's a hard place to study anything and we don't really know what they're doing out there. Um,
0: right, right, exactly. And so that made
1: me very curious to try to understand that better. Um, so we were able to put... GPS collars on 9 adult resident coyotes which I will freely admit is a very small sample but that's often the reality when you're working with like, large carnivores and right. that was able to be paired with the park's ongoing wolf GPS project um that we try to keep like 1 to 3 GPS collars in each pack and I was basically able to put all of those points together on the same map and start asking questions about how are the coyotes using this space? Um, are they avoiding wolves in space and time, just in space, just in time? Like, how are they doing this? And, you know, what I found was, um, first of all, they didn't, it wasn't like, here's the wolf territories and the coyotes squeeze in between. Definitely not. Coyotes had these huge home ranges that, you know, overlap with one or more wolf territories, depending on how they were situated. And I think that really speaks to the necessity of being able to cover a lot of ground in that difficult environment. There's just no way to get the food you need if you're squeezed into a small area in Denali. It's just not enough. So they had to spread out. They had to overlap with wolves. And what I found was that with the the two sort of metrics I looked at, which is how do they respond to um, the long-term patterns of wolf use on the landscape, So essentially, right, some areas are are heavily used by wolves, others are infrequently used by wolves. Did the coyotes respond to that? And then did they respond to proximity? The best I could measure with the collars, you know, if they're like near to a wolf or not. And by looking at both of those, what I found was that um, in the summertime, the coyotes tended to spend more time in areas that were less frequently used by wolves, and they tended to be a bit further from wolves than if it were random. However, in the winter, both of those metrics reversed. They spent more time in the same areas that wolves tend to spend time in, and they were more likely to be closer to their nearest wolf than if it were random.
0: That's interesting. Again,
1: caveat, small sample size. um, And it it was a data collected over a two-year period. And of course, in the natural world, there's so many cycles that fluctuate on 5 10 20 100 year time scales we can't necessarily extrapolate this very broadly but it was super interesting to me um, and i have several theories about why that is the case my the one i think is most likely is that in the winter there are major energy constraints on animals traveling through the through the snow anybody who's walked through even knee deep snow right knows that gosh, it's pretty tiring. And yeah. animals can't afford to be burning a ton of extra energy floundering around in deep snow if there's an easier way to travel. And so that funnels everybody on the landscape towards the easy travel routes, whether that's a windblown top or the firm ice of a river or a trail that humans have put in, um, because you're saving energy by using that route. Um, so I rather suspect that there's definitely a component of wolves and coyotes getting funneled together in that regard. There could be more complex behavioral stuff to it about hunting and scavenging or feeling more secure if you know where the wolves are than if you don't. We didn't really have the data resolution to answer those questions more specifically. I also think my big takeaway from it is that like everything in ecology, it's never one size fits all you know, these, these animals are showing different behaviors in different seasons. I was also looking at kind of how they were selecting these, uh, how they were responding to these wolf metrics, depending on if they were like in the forest or in the tundra, those differences weren't as strong as the seasonal differences, but there were some. So again, it's like, depends on the habitat they're in. And as somebody who's really excited about behavioral ecology and, and the, the, interface right there of individual animals making their own decisions that then scales up to produce ecological patterns i'm I'm always sort of reiterating that um, you know it's never one size fits all and animals are smart and they're making complex decisions in a complex world it's very unlikely that we're ever going to get here's the rule here's how they do it the end so to me, that just really reinforced that idea of when we're trying to understand how things are working, we need to be very cautious about generalizations, because typically the deeper you look, the more you see nuance and complexity there.
0: Yeah. Well, everything you said, yes. Yeah, I was just going to say that, and you, and you took the words right out of my mouth there. I mean, they're so intelligent, and just the adaptability really of all of the... The, the predators that, that you spoke about, the coyotes, the wolverines, the fox, I mean, these animals are really just trying to, they're just trying to live. And I think that's, I think when you put it that way, it sometimes reaches the general public a little bit more when they understand, oh no, I'm just trying to get food for my, fam- my pack, my yeah. family. I'm just trying to figure out a way to survive. Like you say, burning less calories, burn, saving the energy. Okay, if I have to be, closer to this pack during the wintertime because I know odds are they'll make a kill. I can get, you know, a few scraps of meat. I'll be okay for the next day or two. However they, however it's rationalized in a biological species brain, it just, you're right. And, And the work you did is, I hope you're going to continue to do this because I think this is really fascinating how this is one, it's going to evolve obviously over time. I mean, the odds of us, I think, surviving for hundred more years or five hundred more years outside that is a little is a little sketchy, but it you know who knows we'll see. But do, do you see yourself really just continuing on this this path this path of diving into a few more years? How how long do you think you're going to be continuing the, these two parts of study?
1: Those specific studies um, concluded with the conclusion of my work as a master's student. I'm still very passionate about both of those topics, and I think there are continuing opportunities for Denali National Park to continue researching some of that. One thing that that I like about the Park Service, although it sometimes annoys me, is that as a biologist for the Park Service. Um, we are sort of tasked with balancing the need to have information about wildlife and resources in the park, whether that's animals or plants or glaciers or whatever, so that we can effectively protect them and effectively manage them. Um, but a big part of the park service mission is about the, um, frankly, humility and saying, hey, we don't need to be controlling everything. We don't need to be messing with everything. Um, it's important for us to just let things be sometimes. Um, and so within the Park Service, as far as research and wildlife goes, I could come up with, huh, I could, I have come up with many cool ideas <laughs> about studies I would love to do. Right. But if those studies aren't strictly necessary for what we're doing in terms of the things that we're required to monitor that we need to monitor to make sure that we're protecting adequately then the park service is kind of like hey you know we don't really need to be doing that we don't need to be calling those animals mm. um calling is very stressful for them um and although i'm like but Wolverine studies i'm also like yeah i'm glad that i'm working for an organization that isn't um isn't necessarily going to approve every single research proposal because right. I think it's important for any researcher to be asked whoever they work for, to be asking themselves, is the information that we're going to get from this study worth it to justify whether that's the stress you're putting the animals through, the fuel you're burning to get there, whatever it is, the, the impacts that you're having. And certainly many times the answer is absolutely yes but we should always be asking that um, of ourselves. And so that does in some regards limit how I might be able to pursue some of these questions um, because plus all of, of course, the usual real world constraints like getting funding and how it would happen and so forth. Um, But I do think there are opportunities for us to continue studying that. We do still put out cameras at carcass sites. Um, I think there has been some for a while now, some ongoing discussion of like, gosh, wolverines are cool. They're a very climactically sensitive species. Should we be considering trying to get a little more information about our wolverines? Um, so there, there is continuing interest and momentum for studies of carn- multiple carnivores in the park and how they're interacting. Um, I don't know that it will be continued with the same, you know, focus as when a grad student's like, this is my project, um, right. But yeah, I'm definitely excited about those possibilities.
0: Yeah. You made some really incredible points and and really just the, your candor and the way you talk about both your job, your, the way you approach this, this research here in Denali is it should be commended. And I, um, I'm really, I'm thankful that we, that we were introduced and that, you know, we have this connection now and we're able to, to talk about this stuff on a deeper level, which is always great. And it's, that's really about what we're doing here with the podcast is making those connections. And, and clearly you've made these connections with Denali and all of the the creatures that you're studying. So it's, we're going to have link, uh, well, I'll ask my last question for you and then we'll, we'll get into how we promote this stuff for you because we do want people to see this research, see where they can find it and all that stuff. But Kaya, before we get to that, my last question for you is when you hear the word wolf, what's the thing that comes to your mind?
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. Hear the word wolf, what comes to my mind? I think what comes to my mind is the color and the texture of the fur along the shoulders, kind of the saddle area of an adult wolf, a gray wolf, that is this beautiful... There's the pale undercoat as the baseline, but then this beautiful high contrast guard hairs that are black, um, but there's you know sort of notes of brown and amber and stuff kind of mixed in, and it's it's this very. Their coats are visually very beautiful. They are just like texturally very rich. They're this incredible tool that allows them to survive. Um, and I, I think of that and I think of the way it moves as their shoulders move as they trot and just this like light movement of that beautiful fur. <laughs>
0: mm, I love that. That, no, that's great. I, we, you know, what's, we, we have not gotten that one. So that's, it's so great. Cause the, the that question brings out so many things for so many different people. So I, I love that. I've, I've, that's such a great description too of of their coat and it, and it is, it's, it's beautiful to see. It's, it's wonderful to look at and, you're right. Now I have that stuck in my brain which is great. Um
1: and I feel I feel so profoundly lucky that my life has presented the opportunities for me to see that once, let alone multiple times, let alone close up. Um you know, that that is a real privilege to be able to have that kind of interaction with an understanding of these animals.
0: Yeah. It really is. It really it hits you in a place, and this is why I always ask people, and, it, and, it, and I sort of know the answer, but the fact that we know that wolves clearly, as we spoke about earlier, the symbolism and the way that they're perceived, on either way you look at them, it, it hits something different than probably any other species on the planet. And it's, it's to their detriment and to their, for the most part, it, it can go either way but it, it's the way that people feel about them. And I, I don't know if that's ever going to change. I want, is there any way that people can take a look at the, the this specific research we talked about with the scavenging patterns, any other work that's going on, social media, things like that? How can they see some of the stuff that you're working on right now?
1: Great question. Um, the papers that I published from my master's research are um, online. I believe they're both behind paywalls. Uh, but if people are interested, they can contact me directly and I will send them the papers. I'm more than happy to do that. Um, the Denali Park website has a big section about wolves and wolf research. It talks about a lot of the stuff we do, how we do it, it gives our population numbers. Um, There's links to sort of pages that go into more depth on specific topics, including some of my work. Uh, And every year, Bridget and I publish what we call our annual report, and that summarizes kind of all our key numbers from the last year, what's been going on with the packs and who reproduced. And then we also put in information about ongoing research, summaries of what's been published, usually some kind of informational pieces about some aspect of wolf Biology. And that's a really great resource for people who just kind of want to know more about, hey, what's going on in Denali with the wolves? And those annual reports are available online through the Denali Park website, the wolf portion of it. So I definitely point people right. in that direction.
0: Awesome. I will have all that stuff in the description for this episode. So you guys, if you're looking for that, we will have it for you all to uh, take a list, uh, look at. And uh, if Kaya's is open to it, I'll post her contact info so you guys if you want to read the paper and take the research it'll be there also uh kaya uh, kaya clowder thank you so much this was really great what an awesome conversation and uh thank you again for for making the time
1: yeah thanks so much for having me i really enjoyed it
0: you got it uh house to y'all out there we'll be with you next time bye everybody looking to support wolf connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack just go to wolfconnection.org click on the donate tab and find out more information.